transformation to electrification and, you know, and to some degree automation and automation in factories is one of the most monumental changes in the auto industry that's happened in almost 100 years. I mean, it's a huge deal. And so welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I am Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined by the best podcast co-host ever, uh, the Honorable Chris Sands from the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hey, Chris. I'm not that honorable, but great to see you, Scotty. (laughs) You are the most honorable. (laughs) Uh, It's great to see you. We are going to talk about electric vehicles today. We're going to talk about the transformation uh, to electrification, challenges, opportunities. It's all in the news uh, in Canada-U.S. relations, and it's all in the news on Canusa Street, but I must say, I don't understand it as well as I should, and I'm excited uh, for our very distinguished two guests here today who can explain it to us. So, Chris, why don't I turn it over to you to introduce our guests to our listeners? Sure. Well, and they are they are great guests this week. We have Brian Kingston, and Brian is President and Chief Executive Officer of the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association, CVMA. The CVMA represents Canada's leading manufacturers of light and heavy-duty motor vehicles, and its membership includes Ford Motor Company of Canada, Limited General Motors Company uh, of Canada Company, and Stellantis, uh, which is, for those of us who go back a ways, uh, Fiat Chrysler, and before that it was was uh, Daimler Chrysler and before that it was Chrysler and it's just a, a great company with many many names um, success has many fathers so uh, great to have you Brian um, and we also have with us Kristen Gicek uh, who is an automotive policy advisor at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago uh, Detroit branch so th- for those of you who don't follow this the Federal Reserve has regional branches and then it has branches of the branches and Detroit gets its own and we're lucky to have her from there um, she just took over this appointment uh, February 8th, and so she's new to the file, but not new to studying the auto industry. Prior to joining the Chicago Fed, uh, Ms. Gicek was Senior Vice President of Research at the Center for Automotive Research in Ann Arbor, uh, one of the best automotive think tanks around, in my, in my view. Um, and they That's a some, biased Michigander. Uh, well, yes, but uh, there are a lot of people who talk about cars, and there's some people who talk about cars in a cool way. But in terms of economics and public policy, Center for Automotive Research is tops in my book. And uh, we're just glad awesome. that uh, you're here to uh, to tell us all about it, uh, Kristen. So thank you very much for coming. And over to you, Scotty, to start us off. Thanks, Chris. And thanks to both of our guests. And Kristen, let's start with you because you're with the Fed. You may have a few uh, important disclaimers to go ahead and get out of the way at the top. And, and we love our, our friends at the bank. So why don't we let you do do your uh, benediction or whatever you need to do at the top, and then we'll jump into, jump into our topic and welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. And it's you know a really important topic. I'm really excited to have this conversation. But yes, I do have to give a little bit of a of a disclaimer at the top that um, you know my opinions here are those of myself. Um, I don't speak for the Federal Reserve, any of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, and you know that's you're you're going to hear my opinions only. So sounds good, and we love your opinions actually. And just for our listeners, as we were in the warm up to this, wh- when you're talking to somebody from the Federal Reserve, one of the other watch watchwords you have is they have blackout periods. So it's like 
If you're a public company director and you are trading stock, you have blockout periods. So do bankers. Um, So Chris, maybe this will be a market moving conversation. I don't know, but we're not going to violate anybody's blackouts and we're not going to, we're just going to take Kristen's uh, personal views and not going to attribute anything to the uh, Federal Reserve. So, But for that, we should, we should tell our listeners, this is being recorded on the 4th of November. So anything that happens after, she didn't know. It wasn't that she was being coy. She just didn't know. (laughs) Or maybe she knew, but anyway, yeah. So, and I don't know when this is going to be released, but sometime, uh, sometime in Q4 2022. So, uh, with all of that uh, pregame activity, um, why don't we go to Brian first, uh, or second, I guess, first in substance. Brian, let talk about, if you would, what what is happening with electrification in the automotive sector? What is there's a lot of headlines about it. Some people are driving electric vehicles, but 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 what what is the trend? What is you know what do you see happening? Um, and and what does it really mean for our integrated industry? I, I mean, the auto industry might be the most integrated industry we have in North America, and that's saying something because we have a lot of integrated ones. So, talk to us about what electrification really means for all of that. Absolutely, and thanks for having me on. And yeah, you're you're right. I mean, automotive is. It is the quintessential North American industry, totally integrated across uh, these three great countries. And what's happening right now is um, really unprecedented. It, it is uh, arguably the most significant transformation we've seen from a technology perspective in auto uh, since really the, the, the introduction of, of the, the gas-powered engine. Automakers are investing at most recent count $1.2 trillion through 2030 to produce electric vehicles. And that will lead to total global production of around 54, 55 million EVs a year by the end of this decade. So this is a significant amount of investment. We're seeing automakers bringing online battery facilities, retooling existing plants for EV production. And this is happening across North America. From a Canadian perspective, uh, over the past two years, we've seen an, uh, a, a, an avalanche of new investment into the country. Four General Motors and Stellantis have announced $13.5 billion in new investment. And the majority of that is dedicated to EV assembly and the battery supply chain. Um, so it's an unprecedented time in the industry, major transformation, uh, and it has big implications for the, the North American relationship, which I know we're going to get into. Thanks, Brian. And Kristen, I want to bring you into this. You're on the U.S. side of the border uh, and quite an expert, as Chris described in your in your opening there. You're in Ann Arbor at the moment um, and you live there. You know a lot about this industry. How do you think about when you think about the U.S. automotive industry and you think about the Inflation Reduction Act, which provided a lot of incentives on electrification and a lot of incentives to put the battery ecosystem really in the United States specifically. That worries Canadian sector a lot. Um, how do you think about Canada when you think about the U.S. industry? Do, or do you think about Canada? I do think about Canada. <laughs> oh, good. That's the right answer on Canusa Street. <laughs> um, I, I do. Um, you know, as as Brian was saying, this is, you know, very, and you as well, Scotty, this is very integrated industry. And, you know, the, when I first came to the bank in February, it wasn't very long before there was um, a blockade at the border and oh, the that's implications right. that that could have had for our industry. 
um, we're so integrated um, in making cars together that, you know, it's hard to think about the U.S. market without thinking about Canada. It's hard to think about Canada without thinking about U.S. because most of your output comes to our country. Um, so, you know, this has really been, um, you know, we've been talking about electric vehicles uh, you know, for 20 some more years about when this was going to start to really take off. And it, the move to electrification has accelerated greatly in the last few years. And the IRA just, you know, gave it a shot in the arm. Um, you know, and what's really clear in reading through the IRA is it's not just about greening, uh, you know, and climate sort of things. It's not just about the jobs um, that are impacted and, and making, you know, trying to make sure that those job transitions are are equitable and just. It's about national security. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that comes down in so many ways in this, <laughs> on the batteries, on the minerals, um, even on semiconductors uh, and sure. some reactions that have taken place there, which are also critical to making electric vehicles. So, you know, what we're really seeing is a, uh, a coming together of these, you know, climate goals, uh, good job goals, and national security goals. And that could have the, the opportunity to unite some uh, disparate uh, political factions <laughs> that are more um, concerned about, uh, about the national security goals and uh, with the folks who are more concerned about the climate goals. And sure. I think that's re really what we see in the IRA is, is the coming together of, of those uh, those three things. I agree with you. That's that's how to look at the IRA. But from a, a Canadian economist and Canadian investors are worried that the IRA is so large. It's a historic amount of money that the United States is going to spend over the next 10 years, something we may not see again, actually, in our lifetime. And Canadian watchers, and Chris and I are here in Washington, D.C., so, uh, you know, we don't, I'm not trying to speak for Canadians, but they, when they speak for themselves, they worry that there's no way to keep up with the kind of investment that the U.S. government is willing to make in its own industry and that every new battery manufacturer, unless they do something really extraordinary, is going to end up in the United States. And by the way, that's why it was designed. So are they worrying needlessly or is that something you think is legitimate from a, again, I know you're in the United States, but thinking about them. The Canadians are not alone there either. I mean, um, I had heard, you know, that there were, um, you know, that Korea was very upset. There are Europeans who are very upset. And I was trying to figure out exactly what was going on. I mean, most of the battery investment in North America is Korean. Um, and many of those benefits of uh, the incentives for producing batteries in the U.S. will go to Korean firms. What will happen is the Korean firms will invest in the U.S. and not in Korea. So the Korean government is upset. <laughs> um, yes. And, you know, I can imagine, you know, from Canada, you've secured several investments in battery production and put together incentives to, to land those investments. And now those producers may come and say, oh, and could you give us $45 a kilowatt hour too? Right. Um, <laughs> like on exactly. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, Canada has a critical role um, not just in the production of vehicles, but in, you know, the, the critical mineral supply chain. And this is, 
underdeveloped in North America, to say the least. Um, and not just in the the mining extraction side of it, but the um, processing and refining, um, you know, Absolutely. working on recycling. Uh, recycling yep. is probably farther along than than processing and refining, but um, you can't move where nickel deposits are or where lithium deposits are. They are where they are. <laughs> but right. um, to um, have partnerships with those countries that do have raw materials or have processing and refining investments is is critical to the success of this battery production happening anyway. So, I mean, Canada should benefit from a large U.S. battery industry. And, you know, I was just talking to someone about, like, you know, the, the result could be the U.S. is a net exporter of batteries. If, like, if those batteries don't have to stay here. You make them here, you get the dollars per kilowatt hours, as it appears right now. I mean, we'll see what, how the regulations come out, whether there's anything that tightens the use of the batteries or where they need to be um uh installed in the vehicle but right now like we this could be a really big industry and canada can be a big part of you know there's cathode and anode material companies in canada there's certain raw material chain um as integral feeders to that to that growing and burgeoning industry in the u.s i i don't envy anybody who's now got (laughs) who's done an incentive or who's looking at a landing one of these investments who now has to go up against that that production credit because as it stands right now i mean we won't know until january probably exactly how that's going to work um it it's a very very rich program it's meaningful yeah mm-hmm. chris well brian last time i think you and i uh were here in washington we were walking and talking about uh what was then uh, a big issue for canada which was ev subsidies that looked like they were going only to vehicles made 100 percent in the united states and that's not necessarily industry logical i don't think industry people would have thought that but you know it's congress And I always feel that there are certain things where you know it's serious because Congress gets smart about them. And by the time we saw the Inflation Reduction Act come in, this this wasn't a USA only. There was really a a recognition of the importance of the North American supply chain and Canada's role in it. Can you talk a little bit about what changed and and where we are now in terms of Canada's access to the EV revolution uh, thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act? Sure. Yeah. And, and you highlight a key point here, which is the IRA has both positives and negatives. And, and the key positive that we saw when the IRA was released was the fact that the U.S. EV tax credit, which had initially been proposed to apply to U.S. assembled vehicles only, has been changed. And so now Canadian assembled EVs will be eligible for this tax credit, which is hugely important because as I outlined earlier, we've, we have new investment in Canada to build and assemble EVs. And of course, the majority of what we build in Canada ends up in the U.S. market. So that's very positive. And that is a, a significant development that's occurred. That said, there are some challenges with the IRA. We've got the 45X manufacturing tax credit, which does pose a competitive challenge for Canada in winning and securing new battery investment. And that's getting a lot of focus right now. We saw mention of that just yesterday, and Minister Freeland was out uh, releasing the fall economic statement and indicating that Canada will respond. There will be a response in the budget to that to ensure that we're competitive. So there are some challenging elements. But another area where I think there's real potential for the Canada-US relationship 
is in critical minerals. The IRA includes a 10% advanced manufacturing tax credit for, for minerals. We've also got funding in the U.S. Defense Production Act to encourage production. But Canada is considered a domestic source under that. And we have the full suite of critical minerals necessary to build EV batteries. So uh, it's not black and white. There, there are some challenges, no doubt, on the competitiveness side with the IRA. But I think if we respond rapidly in Canada, we really work hard to develop that critical mineral supply chain. I think there's huge potential to seize on the fact that we have this highly integrated industry uh, and create a Canada-US North American battery and EV supply chain. Absolutely. And uh, Christian Gicek, I, I want to ask you a little bit, as we talk about ramping up production, one of the things that, that you also hear is we don't really have the electrical grid today that will match the demand on the grid from an electrical electric vehicle revolution. So this really is knock on, on a lot of investment that has to happen for this to all work. What's your sense in terms of the the grid, the power support, what we need to do to have the electricity to power these vehicles. Are those investments on track? Are they coming? Uh, and does IRA do tell us anything about how to incentivize that build out? Well, so IRA has some money for some of the infrastructure, but you have to go back to the IIJA, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, uh, to look at what really went in on the on the grid side. And I'll admit I'm not a grid expert. And so is the grid sufficient or will it be sufficient? And is this on track? I cannot tell you. Um, but what I do know is that this is a multi-pronged approach from uh, from the US administration right now to um, to make those investments in grid resilience and and expanding the, the grid, expanding charging, which is a huge um, enabler of, you know, getting getting people over the, the hurdle of, of uh, range anxiety to have ubiquitous fast charging, uh, despite the fact that most people are just going to charge their vehicles at home and not drive, you know, 350 miles a day, they need to feel like they can. <laughs> so, you know, that's a that's, that's a right. barrier to um, to some adoption, and so they're trying to you know do that and prioritize. And in the IRA, there is some money for infrastructure that prioritizes rural um, and underserved. Uh, urban areas where charging will need to go to. So, you know, is the grid going to be sufficient? They're making those investments. Hope, mm -hmm. hope those all come together and, and that they meet in the middle. Um, but, you know, that it's, it's a lot of money coming at this problem from many directions. And a very complicated problem. That's right. So, so let's take a little break here. And when we come back, I want to ask um, Kristen in particular... It about why it is that the Fed, um, the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, has an analyst who knows so much about electric vehicles is like, does the Fed have hundreds of people? Is it three people? Like, because I'm, I'm trying to use that to understand um, how big this automotive sector and EVs in particular are in the minds of the people that are, you know, helping run the economy. And then, and then when we come back from the break, I'll, we'll also ask Brian about the uh, Canadian budget update that just occurred as we're recording this today and, and what that means um, from his perspective. So let's, uh, let's take a little break and we'll come right back. Are you red, white, and blue or just red and white? Beaver or bald eagle? Ryan Reynolds or JLo? Canusa Street, a masterclass in cross-border relations. 
This is where Canada and the United States intersect on the policies and issues of our two great nations. But you know that already. That's why you're here. The question is, if you want more of this bilateral bonanza delivered directly to your inbox, and you know you do, how about signing up for Scotty Greenwood's weekly email updates on Canada-U.S. relations? Head to cabc.co to sign up today. And now back to Canusa Street. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everyone. We're here talking about the electric vehicle revolution and all it's going to take to get there with two great experts, Brian Kingston with the Canadian Motor Vehicle Association and uh, Christian Gicek, who is with the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, Detroit branch, and an automotive expert there. Scotty was just asking her an important question. Scotty. Yeah, well, I was just, as I was listening to you, Kristen, you're such an expert, and it occurred to me, why does the Chicago Fed have an expert like you? And, you know, put it into context for those of us who have never even met anybody from any Federal Reserve Bank, uh, let alone an automotive expert. Like, give give us a little context of of how the thing is organized and, and your role in it. And that'll be, that'll help us understand, I think, um, the topic a little bit. So the Federal Reserve, the central bank of the United States, does a lot of things. <laughs> um, the thing that gets the headlines is that they meet eight times a year and they set the the um, the rates, the interest rates. And you know, many people think that's all we do. <laughs> um, but you know, we supervise banks, we have cash services, we have people out doing community development work and making sure that banks are um, treating uh, you know, people in populations in, in the U.S. fairly. Um, so we're a regulatory or a supervision kind of uh, role of, of banking and, and the, its effects on communities. But, you know, it's the, the Fed has two charges, really, stable prices and full employment. And to do that, we have many, many experts in many, many fields um, who are monitoring what is going on in those uh, critical industries and critical areas. Uh, so that the Fed decision makers and policymakers have the best information they can have about the economy. And the transformation to electrification and, you know, and to some degree automation and automation in factories is one of the most monumental changes in the auto industry that's happened in almost 100 years. I mean, it's a huge deal. And so, you know, a large portion of the U.S. auto industry is in the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago's region. And so, uh, you know, we care a lot about, you know, there's jobs at risk. There's jobs that we could be gaining. There's investments being made at a huge scale. And what is the economic impact of all of that matters? Now, we also have experts in in the energy sector, in the mining sector, and industrial forecasting, and all across the regional banks in the U.S. So, you know, we're all talking to each other about you know, what is this going to mean for oil extraction in, in Texas? What is it going to mean for mining in the Western states? What is it going to mean for, you know, making transmissions in Detroit? <laughs> you know, it, it all comes into making sure that our policymakers have the best information about the economy 
as it stands and as it as where, where we think it's going. So that's why they have experts and that's why they hired me. I, w I was one step ahead of you, Scotty, just a little bit, because I know um, Thomas Clare, who he and I have written a couple of things together. Fantastic economist, works in the auto industry. He's in Chicago, though, uh, but uh, like he's based in Chicago. I think you're in Ann Arbor. But it's, it's really amazing the amount of talent and skill that exists within the bank and its experts. So grateful for your time. Now, back to you, Scotty. I just wanted to get a plug in. Just saw Thomas yesterday. So I was in <laughs> Chicago yesterday. So he Excellent. and I work Excellent. very closely together as well as, you know, there's folks who understand um, automotive finance and how that whole part and insurance and other things that, you know, all touch the auto industry in some way. So there's experts in everything. Definitely. Well, and Chris, you're going to have to you're going to have to explain who he is before I move up, move over to my question for Brian. Who oh, is he? Who's well, Thomas? Well, Thomas is amazing. He um, he, uh, he. Many listeners will know. Okay, so some listeners will know. Nobody's going to know this. He, Chris, just you. He's the co-author of a great book, "Who Really Made Your Car," with James Rubenstein, and he's done a, some really good work on how the geographic footprint of the industry has changed with the emergence of uh, southern U.S. states, which have little hubs of the auto sector. Um, and some of them are integrated and some of them are more standalone, like little BMW hubs and Mercedes hubs that have a little lean on the rest of the production capacity. But what he's identified is this kind of shift. And how, what that means for Canada, among other things, is that there's a southern pull and Canada for a while, really worried if they were going to lose their industry because of it. So Thomas, highly recommended. We'll put uh, a plug for his book in the uh, on the webpage with the podcast. I thought he might be another Fed analyst for a minute there. So, oh, he is. Oh, he is. Well, there you go. You forgot to say that part, oh, Christopher. <laughs> I was waiting for the link. Uh, okay. Now it all makes sense. Okay. Brian Kingston, um, today as we're recording this, uh, Canada's Deputy Prime Minister, Minister of Finance, released what Canadians like to call a mini budget. Uh, what does it mean for your sector? What do you think about it? Give us a, give us a little bit of a, of a picture behind the curtain up there. Sure, yeah. And th this was a very uh, highly anticipated fall economic statement or, or mini budget because of the Inflation Reduction Act. This is the moment that came out and, and economists and industry associations and companies started to understand the implications of the IRA for Canada. Uh, there's been a lot of attention around how will Canada respond. And the fall economic statement was the first opportunity for Minister Freeland, the Deputy Prime Minister, to come out and uh, and provide some direction on what the government's going to do. Um, so a couple of interesting things. I mean, first of all, uh, auto was featured throughout, which is really interesting to see. And I think it just proves uh, the point that we've been making around the scale of this transformation that's underway and the economic importance and potential of getting this transformation right. Autos mentioned throughout this statement, including new investments that have been uh, made in, into Canada. And there's uh, a recognition of the fact that the Inflation Reduction Act is going to pose a challenge for industry and that Canada needs to respond. So that's all good. Uh, where the challenge is, is the response isn't there yet. Effectively, what the federal government's done is kind of kicked it down the road to budget 2023. And there was a placeholder there saying, uh, we recognize that there's a challenge here. We recognize the importance of the industry. We'll get back to you in the budget, in the new year, with details about how to respond. And so I think we're going to probably see a couple of things. First of all, there needs to be a response to keep up with the Americans on EV adoption. As Kristen outlined, 
huge, huge investments now into charging infrastructure. Uh, you've got a tax incentive for home installation of infrastructure. You've got a used EV incentive. There's an incentive for commercial vehicles. Uh, you name it. A lot of money is being spent on the IRA in this transformation. And Canada just simply needs to keep pace with the Americans, given how integrated we are. And then we'll have to see some more action on critical minerals. We've got the potential. We've got the critical endowments. But we need to move from talking about it and looking at all the kind of dots on the map where we know we have these minerals to showing that we're ready to produce and, and have approval processes for mines that can move quickly while ensuring that we maintain all of our very strong environmental and consultation mechanisms. And then the last piece, of course, will be some sort of response to 45X, which is this battery, uh, this battery manufacturing tax credit, which is really, really important and hugely valuable for companies that locate in the U.S. So uh, response to come, basically, is what we saw in the fall economic statement. And uh, we'll be working to, to make sure that there's a strong reply uh, when budget 2023 comes out. Well, thanks for that, Brian. And you, I want to pick up exactly where you left off, because what I was going to ask you is, uh, take us behind the scenes a little bit into a day in your life, because from the public point of view, I, you know, I have to say, you're, I think you're one of the most effective spokespeople for industry in North America. You're out there, you're talking, you're doing podcasts like this, you're on Twitter, you're, you're, you're very effective. And anybody, any of our listeners can Google you and see all of that, follow you on Twitter, whatever. But behind the scenes, what do you do? Like, what is the organ? How? What does it look like? Are you having meetings with the Ministry of Finance? Are you? What do? You, what are you doing to try to make sure that between now and the actual budget? Because you said it's sort of a whole watch this space kind of message this fall. How do? You, how does a, a, an operation like yours so so important to Canada? move the needle um, or try to move the needle with what the policymakers are going to do? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, our mission is to make Canada as competitive as possible so that we can attract more investment, employ more people and, and grow this footprint uh, in, in the country. So what we're trying to do between now and, and the budget and, and frankly, in the run up to the fall economic statement is first explaining the implications and the significance of the Inflation Reduction Act. Because when it first came out, there was so much attention on the EV tax credit because that was such a focus of government to get that resolved um, that I think it took a little bit of time for people to understand that, wow, I mean, that, that's good news, no doubt. Um, but we've got some real challenges here. So um, yeah, the, the victory work. lap was was loud and proud. It was loud <laughs> and proud. It was loud and proud. And, and uh it may have um, overshadowed for a few weeks some of the other serious uh, challenges that we find now in the IRA. So what, what we do is we, we work with governments at all levels um, and explain what this means for Canada, what it means for attracting new investment, what it means for the existing auto footprint here, and then put forward proposals, ideas, solutions to ensure that we are still competitive. And, you know, let me be clear here. We can't match the U.S. when it comes to pure fiscal firepower. That's not possible, right? I mean, the IRA, we're looking at 370 billion U.S. dollars, give or take, uh, dedicated to fighting climate change and retooling auto plants. I mean, these are huge, huge numbers. We can't compete with that on a dollar for dollar basis. But Canada can be nimble, we can be smart, and we can put forward some incentives and policies that are targeted to elements of the supply chain where we know we have an advantage and we can ensure that we attract that investment and we play a part in this transformation. So that, 
that's what we're doing. Uh, we're meeting with uh, with government officials. We're meeting with with MPs and ministers, and and making sure that that's understood, and that we've got some proposals to come forward with, so that uh, Canada's industry continues to grow and employ people. Thanks for that, Brian. Kristen, do you see any irony in this idea that something that's called inflation reduction? actually is putting hundreds of billions of dollars into the economy? Like, isn't isn't inflation caused by too much money in the economy already? Uh, well, I, I don't, don't really want to touch that. <laughs> All right. Very cool. okay. But I will say, you know, the the part that we're focusing on, the Inflation Reduction Act, is is just a small part of the overall bill. I mean, that that bill has things in it that lower prescription drug prices and some other um, really critical things um, that help consumers here in the U.S. Uh, you know, better afford drugs. We don't have the national health care that, that you guys have in Canada, so we we very much struggle with um, how people can afford their medical care. Yeah, and you know, so it, it covers a wide range of of sectors. And you know, what Brian said about like you know the the slow burn on the manufacturers' credits and the all of that. That happened here too in the U.S. I think you know the headlines were all about the renewal of the consumer credit, but all that other stuff. When people started reading through it, and I know that I I delivered the message to a few people myself because like I had read the whole thing and I'm like, have you seen this section? Have you seen this section? <laughs> um, You're one of the few. <laughs> I'm a nerd. I read bills. I <laughs> like, that came out while I was on vacation. I read it on my phone. Oh, wow. So, That's dedication right there. That's a big, long bill. Yeah, it is. Um, but, yeah, because I'm a nerd. There you go. <laughs> um, but, yeah, some of that was, you know, does this really mean this? Like, And right. some of that we're going to find out. I mean, right now they, um, the regulations are being written. The, uh, the comments were just submitted for, this, um, for the consumer credit. And now we're seeing uh, comments starting to be filed on the, on the commercial credit. Um, and some other uh, pieces of the regulatory puzzle that are coming together now. So, um, you know, this is the roadmap and, you know, how we actually get to these these destinations is still being determined. Well, let me let me jump in on this. I just have a, a couple of questions for each of you. And I know you've already been so generous with your time, but let me start with you, Brian. Um, one of the things I you sometimes hear more from politicians or ordinary citizens than from uh, industry experts is this idea that the U.S. gives Canada an auto plant, gives Canada a project, like it's like it's a gift to our good buddies. And growing up in Detroit, I I know that individual plants compete for every vehicle line, every piece of business, and that carries on through the supply chain to suppliers as well. Uh, so I know this, and I think you know this, but can you talk a little bit about this as not a question of the U.S. doing Canada favors, but of Canada competing hard and on the merits, really winning a lot of business. And this goes back more than a century. Canada's always been at that cutting edge. Um, but talk a little bit about that, if you will, because I don't think people always understand that dynamic. Sure. Yeah. And that's I mean, that, that has been uh, a key focus of, of the industry and, and frankly, governments at all levels over the years is making sure that Canada can compete with the U.S. and key auto jurisdictions in the U.S., for new investment. And um, we've had to compete, of course, at the municipal level, the state level, and now we have to compete at the federal level because of the IRA and the scale of those uh, incentives. So uh, it, it's, a constant, it's a constant process of comparing the Canadian offer and the, you know, everything from labor, electricity costs, 
um, energy cost, you name it, the, the whole uh, sc- scope and scale of what makes a, a facility attractive and compare it to jurisdictions in the United States and ensure that we're, we're putting forward a package that, that gets the attention of automakers. I would argue that with this transformation to electrification and the critical mineral potential that Canada has, I think it creates an, an even stronger case for some of that activity in the EV supply chain to be taking place in Canada. The IRA has very specific rules around sourcing of minerals, for example, and Canada is a location of choice to do that. So um, I, we're unique. We've got five OEMs with an assembly footprint in the country. We've now secured some investment in the battery supply chain. If we can be competitive and we can make sure that we've leveled the playing field with the U.S., I think we can have even more investment in the EV supply chain going forward. So I'm really optimistic about the future of the industry, uh, but we always have to compare ourselves to, to what the U.S. is doing. One of the critical things to, to know about this is China is the elephant in the room. China has secured minerals and processing and refining on the battery supply chain many, many years ago (laughs) and continuing to do that. Um, And they are dominant producer of electric vehicle battery cells um, and processing and all that. Um, And, you know, the IRA has in it a... um, an exclusion for um, uh, particular countries that we have to wean off sources um, from particular countries, and China would be one of those. Um, this is not going to happen overnight. I mean, China is dominant. 80% of battery cells come from China. And so if we're going to get off Chinese battery cells and off Chinese minerals, off processing, um, these new sources have to come online and they have to come from allied and friendly free trade countries like Canada. Um, So this is, you know, you can't go cold turkey and not have another source. No, I'm glad you brought that up because I guess in both my question to Brian and and your response as well, there's sometimes this feeling that it's um, that a we're doing something nice for Canada. And I think Brian quite rightly said, no, we're competitive, but also the sense that with the EV revolution, this isn't a struggle for scraps. We're growing the pie. There's going to need to be a lot of investment, a lot of jobs and so much more production from critical minerals all the way down uh, to the tail end of the industry. All of that has to change. So we shouldn't begrudge seeing Canada doing well. We should cheer it on because there's plenty of work and we'll need to do that here. It's not exporting jobs. It's actually growing the number of jobs that serve this amazing industry. Is that fair to say? I mean, maybe I'm too optimistic and bullish. I think it's fair to say. Okay. Okay. I mean, we we don't have some of the things you have. (laughs) The U.S. does not have all of the critical minerals it needs to support a battery industry that it is funding. Um, and nobody has the refining and processing capability yet. So we have to co-invest and, and work on this problem together. Because, I mean, this is the, the, you know, national security hawks don't want to trade oil dependence for critical mineral dependence, right? Um, and critical mineral dependence on Canada is a lot more secure. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. We're moving from a fossil economy to a mineral economy, and we need to understand what that's about. You're exactly right. And a semiconductor economy, too. Don't forget. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that, too. Don't forget. Can't forget the chips. That's right. Well, uh, then, then I'm just going to ask my nerdy question. And, and Kristen, this is sort of uh, I hope I hope you'll give me some encouragement. But 
every once in a while, there's somebody who talks about, oh, we could have a common currency between Canada and the US, or, oh, you know, we could coordinate these kind of policies. I always want to tell people that whatever you think the man on the street knows about Canada, Americans in jobs like yours are actually paying a lot of attention to Canada. And and it's not a question of a black box. You've got good data sources, good partners in the government of Canada, the Bank of Canada that provide good data. Is Do you think, um, well, I guess if you could tell me a little bit about how important understanding Canada is as you try to understand the economic impact of the auto industry going forward? Well, Quite frankly, you can't understand the auto industry at all if you don't understand Canada and Mexico. I mean, mm. they're both very critical players, and we have a free trade agreement with, with for a unified production base here in North America. So, um, you know, unified currency, I was thinking, but your bills are so much prettier than ours. <laughs> <laughs> they are, and I have the little, like, Northern Lights quarter, and I'll, like... Your, your currency is much prettier than mine. Um, and I won't comment any further on unified currency. Um, <laughs> but, but they are so nice. Um, yeah, I think it, it's, it's part of the, of the industry. And, you know, we, we saw that, you know, when the COVID lockdowns happened, right? Like on both sides of the border, we needed to get to each other to do business and to get things rolling and to have a coordinated reopening after COVID. Um, You know, you couldn't have one country, you know, gearing up their auto production if they weren't getting the engines from St. Catharines. If you guys weren't up to, we couldn't make cars Um, and, and vice versa. There's so many things. And, you know, there's this, there's this trope in the industry about how many times a park crosses the border i've tried tracking that thing down and finding out you know exactly how they did that i know where the article came from and the person who led the research is, has passed away so there's nobody who actually knows where that came from but it's true i mean you just have to watch the bridge and know that there's things going across multiple times the processing steps are on both sides of the border and you know put a couple people on on the ambassador bridge and we could shut down the industry like that so Absolutely. I, I know the exact number of times that people often cite is unreliable. And it depends on, you know, like, it depends on the model. It depends on anything. But, but the essential truth is there. The things go back and forth and absolutely a very important feature of our trade. Canada's critical to the mold building industry, right? So like we make dyes and you guys make molds. And, you know, like there's, you know, metal processing that's different on other on the Canadian side. Hydroforming is bigger on Canada. And like you have energy uh, cost advantages and some things that we don't. And you know, like it's we make cars together. Absolutely. Well that Brian, that sets you up perfectly. If you were if you were able to brief Oh, I don't know. Let's say uh, an American congressman or even the Canadian government, what has to happen next for us to avoid useless wasteful friction and get moving on an EV revolution. What are some of the priorities that you would have? Just top of mind, what do we have to do? What should we be doing today, if not yesterday? Sure. Well, first and foremost, uh, we, we need to be working faster and more closely together on critical minerals. I know we have the Canada-US Criticals, uh, Critical Minerals Action Plan. There's been a lot of talk about the potential, but We've got to move from from talk to action, and it has to happen basically yesterday. 
Um, the other uh, area where I'd like to see more cooperation, this is probably more uh, to the, the Canadian government, more so than the U.S., but on this whole piece around adoption, we're not going to hit our adoption targets. The U.S. is targeting 50% sales by 2030. Canada is targeting 60%. We have to do this together because of the integrated nature of the industry. Uh, and so what does that mean? Well, that means we should be matching each other in terms of the incentives we're offering consumers. When it comes to charging infrastructure, we've got to keep pace. We can't have one jurisdiction building more and faster than another. Um, so I think there's some areas for more cooperation as we move in this transition to electrification. And uh, if we get it right, I mean, the economic opportunities are, are going to be phenomenal. Absolutely. Scotty. Well, I was just going to say amen, brother. And we're coming to the end of our time. So I want to um, give you each an opportunity to to wrap up um, with whatever pro tips you have for people who are watching uh, and paying attention to this electrification revolution that's occurring. Uh, what's your what's your quick word of wisdom? And we'll start with you, Brian, and then we'll and then we'll go to you, Kristen. The, the, the transition is here. It's happening in real time. You're going to see more and more EVs uh, coming into the market at a, at a pace that we've never seen before. Um, so get ready for it. You know, start planning for it. Depending on if you work in government, if you're in the policy space, this is going to require a lot of coordination, everything from local utilities through to the mining industry. And of course, at the end uh, of the supply chain, auto assembly. So uh, it's happening now, but we've got to work together. We've got to coordinate. So uh, it's exciting, but um, let, let's get to work. Thanks, Brian. Kristen, last word to you. Okay. Well, I think um, I'll come back to the, the two things that the Fed is watching. We're watching um, stable prices and full employment, right? And those two things are impacted in this electric vehicle transition. So right now, electric vehicles cost a whole heck of a lot more than an average vehicle, and average vehicles are up. Um, so some of this cooperation that we're doing is aimed at getting these vehicles more affordable and more um, a wider adoption across the wide spectrum of, of vehicle drivers. Um, having infrastructure and all that stuff makes them feel more confident in it, but we've got to watch... Um, what we're doing and move quickly to make sure that this is a widely adopted tra uh, transformation. And I think secondly, we can't forget um, the quality of the jobs that are going to be in this new industry. So a lot of times we're looking at, um, you know, the jobs that are in engine and transmission or, you know, fuel pumps and all kinds of you know, exhaust systems and things that are at risk. Um, they may have the skills, they may have all sorts of things that would make them very useful in battery or e-motor or e-transaxle production, but those things may be made by new companies or joint ventures or in a different state or in a different province. Um, so we've got to keep an eye on the employment transitions that are happening here too, um, because you've got, an, you know, like I said at the beginning, we've got these national security goals, we've got environmental goals, um, we've got uh, energy goals. Um, We've got to make sure that this doesn't grind people up in the gears as we make this big, big, big shift. I think that's a great place, uh, a great piece of advice. And it just reminds me that um, when the NAFTA first came into effect, we maybe didn't pay enough attention to uh, what economists call dislocations. And so I think both of you have given us a lot to think about today. And uh, 
and thinking about not only what's happening, but also the impact it could have on the economy and on people's jobs, both positive and potentially negative, is important so that we can hopefully minimize the negative, accentuate the positive and eliminate the negative, as they say. Uh, So listen, uh, thank you both for joining us. This has been really wonderful. Thank you. Thanks. Appreciate it. I have to have you come back on the street anytime because this street is made for electric vehicles. Well, Chris, that was a fun discussion. I know you always like going back to Motor City, uh, the the town of your childhood. So I enjoyed learning a few things from uh, from our two experts. Yeah, I'm always in Motor City in my mind, so that was perfect. But it was also really neat to hear about, and maybe this is this is my particular nerdery, about how Canada and understanding Canada is useful and really essential to a lot of what people like Kristen do in the United States. That So for a long time, we talked about Canadian studies as this sort of niche corner of academia where you studied Margaret Atwood novels and, uh, you know, discussed the, the cleverness of Sir John A. Macdonald. But increasingly, I think our lives on either side of Canusa Street, the Canadian side or the U.S. side, require a greater degree of mutual knowledge. And the experts are out there, the people who are looking at the data who may not know all the details of Canada, the country, but they know about Canada. And there's a misnomer sometimes the Americans are not as aware of Canada or not as smart on Canada as they need to be. But I think the people who need to be are. And Kristen's a great example of that. Great example. And, and you know, this is what I love about, about getting together on this podcast. I always learn something. So it's great to hear from Brian and how much work is ahead of the Canadian automotive industry uh, to figure out how to, how to hang on to its piece of the pie uh, when the U.S. is investing so heavily in, in the energy transformation. Um, I know Canada will play an important role, already is playing an important role, but it's important to have these conversations on Canusa Street so we can remind key players about how integrated we really are to each other. So I think it was good. I think it's good too. And, and really appreciated their um, reaffirmation. There's no charity in this business. Canada and the U.S. compete. We compete with each other and we're better because of it. We work hard. There's a lot of pressure from the U.S. on Canada, Canada on the U.S. to keep it, to keep pace with change and innovation, and we're better off for it. Well, we compete. Importantly, we also play by the same basic rule book. And when you think about critical minerals, which is important in this conversation, our global competitors play by a different set of rules, whether it's environmental rules or human rights rules. And so that's um, that's why government plays a role, because the market by itself can't compete with a giant state-owned enterprise with the you know, largest economy in the world. So Uh, governments and private sectors need to get together to make sure that North America is the most competitive region in the world. And um, I'm glad we have these conversations. Me too. That's wonderful. And uh, now I'm going to go cruising on Canusa Street up and down. (laughs) With the top down. Great way to spend the weekend. With the top down, yes. All right. See you next time, my friend. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, Help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.